from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. February 26, 1993, at the World Trade Center in New York. So I will leave the house at 10 after 11. I'll be in the garage between 12.15 and 12.20. That was Guy Tozzoli's plan, but it didn't work out that way. So instead of being in the garage between 12.15 and 12.20, I was in the garage at 12.10. Just minutes later. 12.17, all of a sudden there's terrible noise, the tower rocked, the lights went out. Janine Ali was also in the building. You felt the earth shake. A 1,300-pound bomb had started a new era of terrorism in the United States. It wasn't surprising to me that we had this tremendous act of terror. Fred Burton led the team of investigators that caught the man who did it. I could hear the radio chatter on the phone line. Uh, We got him, we got him, we got him. The attack, the survivors, the victims, the man who did it, and the chase to find him. A comprehensive look at soft targets, then and now. I I think we have too many soft targets. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. It was a wintry day on February 26th, 1993, in New York City. Guy Tozzoli was late for a meeting. And the phone rang exactly at 11 o'clock. And my secretary said, "Uh, Mr. T, uh, you haven't left yet. And I said, well, what's the matter? She said, well, you have a meeting at 12 o'clock with the people from Romania. And I said, gee, uh, take me an hour and 10 minutes. It'll take me 10 minutes to get ready. So I will leave the house at 10 after 11. I'll be in the garage between 12.15 and 12.20. The bomb that left a crater half the size of a football field in the garage of the World Trade Center went off at 12.17 p.m., which meant that just as he was pulling into the garage, the bomb would have gone off. I went my usual way to the George Washington Bridge, down the West Side Highway, and that day on Friday was snowing a little bit. It was cold, very cold. I didn't take an hour and 10 minutes. I got into the garage in one hour. The lights were green, not my fault, and, and not planned. I sped along as best I could, but not any different than I always did. But you know, you can't tell the lights are red sometimes, and 10 minutes is not a lot of time. So instead of being in the garage between 12.15 and 12.20, I was in the garage at 12.10. He was lucky. The only six people killed were in the garage on that day. Tozzoli made a mistake that day that probably saved his life. He told his story to the 9-11 Museum Memorial staff. And so did Janine Ali. You felt the earth shake, felt the bomb. We didn't know what it was. You couldn't really see out the windows because it was it was a snowy, cold, 
foggy day, so you really couldn't tell what was going on. But even though people inside the building were unaware, the news had traveled very fast to people outside. At the time, my brother was working on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and he called me and he said, what the hell are you still doing there? They're evacuating your building. Get out. And then the phones went dead. And so did the power. So I ran over to our controller at the time, and I remember saying to him, you can stay if you want, but there's smoke pouring through the vents on our side of the floor. I'm getting out, and so are my people. The stairs were packed. You couldn't walk down a step until the person in front of you walked down a step. I mean, we were literally back to back to back. The person who is my best friend, I remember holding her hand, remember us counting because there wasn't the same number of steps on each landing and you couldn't see. So we would go, we were counting out loud and people were yelling at us for doing that. But we held each other. I held the rail, she was at the wall, and we would count, okay, this one's eight, this one's seven, this one's eight, this one's... And there were people up above, and we'd be yelling, we need some light. But, you know, there were very few flashlights, and it was pitch black. Pitch black. In the meantime, Guy Tazzoli had made it to his office and started the meeting that he was late for. 12.17, all of a sudden, this terrible noise, the tower rocked, the lights went out in my office, and I continued the meeting. When I opened the door, the stairs were filled with people. And it was already smoky in there. And a man on the steps recognized me. <laughs> he said, Guy, what the hell happened? I said, I don't know any more than you do. And somebody else said, who's he? And the fellow says, he built this place. Six people died in the explosion. More than a thousand were injured, and it wasn't until Janine Alley got to the PATH transit station that she realized what had happened. And when I got to the PATH station and called my husband to tell him I was home, that's when I found out it was a bomb, and I collapsed on the floor. Like that whole time, I don't know that we didn't talk about what it was, but to hear him say the word terrorists and bomb, my knees just, my legs went out completely from underneath me, and I just collapsed in the, in the PATH station. First off, it wasn't surprising to me that uh, we had uh, this uh, tremendous act of terror on U.S. soil, uh, specifically in New York City. Fred Burton on that day was Deputy Chief of Counterterrorism at the State Department. Uh, I think, uh, you know, when I first started in the early 80s, uh, you could almost see the tempo and the pace of these attacks uh, uh, around the globe. And then, of course, um, uh, you know, we had the assassination of Rabbi Meir Kahani uh, by an Egyptian uh, a killer by the name of Saeed Nosser, uh, which occurred. Uh, so uh, we knew we had this uh, group of, we called Afghan Arabs at the time that were on the loose in New York City. And um, so the, the attack on the World Trade Center uh, wasn't surprising, but from a practical standpoint, uh, you know, you, you immediately think of the times that you visited there. Uh, the U.S. Secret Service had a field office uh, inside the building. Uh, we had been there repeatedly on protective details and visits and so forth. So uh, it's one of those kinds of things that is uh, not surprising, but yet you still are uh, somewhat uh, shocked that it actually occurred. 
Okay, so um, how long did it take you to figure out what had happened that day? Well, we pretty much knew it was a bomb uh, right away, you know, based upon um, what occurred with with what is called the blast seat, uh, which is, you know, most people refer to it as the crater. Uh, we knew that we had a bomb inside the parking garage. Uh, we knew that it was a pretty good sized bomb uh, just based upon the size of the blast seat. Uh, and uh, so uh, your ne- your immediate reaction is, is one of um, how can we help? Uh, what can we do to assist? Uh, you start thinking about all the different actors that possibly could have been involved from Hezbollah, uh, who was the master of the car bomb uh, in those days. And, and remember, too, J.J., that the the horrific bombings of the U.S. embassies uh, in Beirut and Kuwait uh, were fresh in all of our minds. Of course, that was the 83 and 84 bombings. So your, your natural default at the time is to relate that uh, in size and in targeting uh, to your previous MO. All right. When you started the process of investigating this and looking for the persons responsible, how long did it take you to figure out that it was Ramzi Youssef? Very quickly, the uh, FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York City uh, brought forth uh, a list of suspects, uh, you know, that was linked to uh, Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman, uh, the blind Sheikh, uh, as well as um, uh, other confederates of him. Uh, and from there, it was fairly um, simplistic, and I, I don't want to, to dumb that down, but, uh, uh, you know, the trail to Yosef. Uh, uh, got pretty hot during that time period, and and we knew uh, that uh, we had a bomb maker that that had to be found. As, as you and I have chatted in the past, uh, you know, bomb makers um, are are worth their weight in gold to a terrorist organization. In 1985, the State Department had been given authority to use the Rewards for Justice program in situations like this one. We knew that if we could use um, at that time, the $2 million reward offer, uh, that that could be a, a powerful tool to try to uh, bring Ramsey Yosef to justice. Burton, a vice president for intelligence at Stratfor, played a key role in that case, and he's never forgotten about it. Uh, I still have one of the original matchbooks um, that we used during that time period, where we put Yosef's picture um, on the matchbook. Uh, in my office here, I'm staring at a poster of uh, Ramsey Yosef that we had initially put together uh, looking uh, for a bounty on his head of $2 million. All right. So that started. The operation got underway. Tell me about the capture. When did you realize you were on to the right person? We were pretty much inundated with uh, ghost sightings, uh, walk-ins from around the world, you know, predominantly in the Middle East, uh, claiming they knew where Yosef was located. Uh, but um, the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad, Pakistan, uh, came through with um, uh, an informant that um, uh, was scared that uh, he was potentially going to die. And in the course of discussions with him, uh, he indicated that he was very worried that he was going to be – he was very worried that he would be 
uh, saddled or used or duped by Ramzi Yosef uh, to carry a baby doll bomb uh, on a an American uh, flag carrier uh, out of Southeast Asia. So he was fearful of his life. Uh, he was also uh, somewhat of a mercenary in that he wanted the reward monies. So uh, within uh, about a, uh, oh, I would say 36-hour time period uh, from the time that the informant first surfaced uh, until uh, our uh, special agents uh, hit the door uh, in Islamabad, Pakistan, uh, we had Yosef in custody. Uh, the the challenge for for me at that time and for all of us logistically uh, was uh, not only you know how do we get Yosef into U.S. custody, uh, but uh, you know how do we also uh, extract our informant uh, who had um, put his life on the line to uh, bring this information to our attention. Three weeks shy of the two-year anniversary of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Ramzi Youssef was captured, and when we come back, you'll hear how it happened. I could hear the radio chatter on the phone line, we got him, we got him, we got him. Also, we'll explore the need for the U.S. to stay vigilant. It took the United States a long time, too long I would say, uh, to uh, fully awaken to the threat that Al-Qaeda and similar organizations pose. That's coming up when we return to Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. On this program, we've reviewed what happened on February 26, 1993, the day the World Trade Center was attacked. We're just about at the point where Ramzi Youssef, the man who did it, was caught. Fred Burton, Deputy Chief of Counterterrorism at the State Department, was leading the team the day, February 7, 1995, that Ramzi Youssef was caught. Oh my goodness, that was, uh, you know, one of those uh, days that uh, I vividly recall um, um, talking to our, our agents on our, our phone back and forth. We had a pretty much an open line that we had put together uh, trying to uh, talk them through exactly what they were learning on site. Uh, I was physically seated, uh, JJ, inside of uh, the FBI uh, SIOC, the Special Intelligence Operations Center. And in that room was John O'Neill, uh, by the way. Uh, God rest his soul. John perished when the trade towers collapsed. And mm. um, Bob Blitzer was there from the FBI. Um, my boss uh, at the State Department was also there. And I was on the phone with our agents uh, in Islamabad and um, – they were relaying messages back and forth. And uh, I remember uh, them going to the hotel room, which our informant had specifically pinpointed. And I remember them asking me, we're here, what should we do next? And I said, well, heck, go in. Let's let's see if he's there. And I kind of figured that, you know, I, I really at that point in time did not know if we had a good informant or just another one that was leading us down the garden path. 
and I could hear the radio uh, chatter uh, on the phone line. Uh, we got him. We got him. We got him. And then um, our agent uh, that was relaying the messages back to me said, uh, Fred, we have him. And I, I seem to recall something like, you know, are you sure? And uh, he goes, yeah, yeah. Uh, however, he had dyed his hair red, uh, which was uh, somewhat unusual and uh, somewhat problematic for us, too, because uh, he had uh, some explosives and, and baby doll bombs uh, in his room there in Islamabad, Pakistan. But it also points out how uh, terrorist tradecraft then and today uh, haven't changed a whole lot when it comes to trying to hide, correct? That's correct. Uh, you know, and we've made a lot of strides since those time periods, uh, JJ. Uh, but if you think about it with the years that we've chatted about this and since the first World Trade Center blast, uh, soft targets remain uh, vulnerable. Uh, groups like Al Qaeda uh, are still laser fixated on uh, trying to bomb uh, or bring down um, passenger aircraft. You know, it remains the holy grail of terror, you mm -hmm. know, going back to the popular front for the liberation of Palestine in the 70s when they hijacked four planes. So uh, I don't anticipate those two threats to ever dissipate in, in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. uh, soft targets are commercial aviation. So that said, um, we are in the midst of a, a national conversation that is uh, gaining in intensity and importance. 17 years after 9-11, we're looking at a still a conversation about soft targets intensifying. Do you think, given your experience in the Ramzi Youssef era and living through, obviously, the 9-11 era and everything that's taken place in the U.S. within the last five years with numerous attacks around the world in France and Germany and in Europe and other places, have we figured out yet how to deal with soft targets? I don't think so, J.J. I, I think we have too many soft targets. Now, having said that, uh, I think you can do baseline threat assessments and pretty much figure out uh, your highest profile th soft targets uh, in any venue. Pick your city, pick your poison, uh, so to speak. Uh, but I think that we've gotten pretty darn good with um, mass casualty critical care response, meaning uh, mitigating that threat once it starts to unfold. Uh, I, and I think that perhaps that's all we can strive for, to be blunt. Uh, you know, I've been in this business a long time now, and uh, I think we've gotten quite good at that, uh, that uh, reactive response to kill capture, to neutralize that threat quickly, uh, the follow-up public safety and EMS training and merger of, of tactical response. And, and I think the real heroes, too, uh, quietly behind the scenes in these things are uh, the nurses and the trauma surgeons that... Uh, are using some of the skill sets that we've learned on the battlefield, uh, not to mention uh, the, just the sheer volume of tempo of attacks we've suffered here in, here in the United States and in Western Europe. So uh, I think uh, that public safety, you know, should uh, get a pat on the bat for that. Uh, you know, I think we figured that out. Uh, I don't think we figured out how to protect every soft target and I think there's unrealistic expectations on the part of the media uh, and the average citizen that uh, we're going to be able to protect everything. So given what we know and given the circumstances that you've laid out, what is it that can be done better? 
I think we have to look at uh, emerging technology, technology solutions that perhaps uh, can help us with uh, the identification of pre-operational surveillance warning and indicators. Uh, I think when it comes to shooters, uh, like what we recently saw unfall, uh, unfold in, in Florida with the school shooting, uh, I think we have to look at uh, a Secret Service kind of model of of how they look at individuals that have made threats or veiled threats. Uh, I think there has to be some hard discussions uh, and, and training that that reaches down into uh, local and state law enforcement. Uh, I also think that um, there need to be some bold new thoughts on this issue, meaning – uh, I think perhaps we need to identify a federal government agency, whether that's the FBI, I don't know, uh, if they're strapped too thin, uh, to laser fixate on on this phenomena uh, and deal with the soft target threat, uh, which I would place uh, school shootings under that umbrella as well. Fred, um, the school shootings is a trouble spot for a lot of people. And uh, before we go, um, what do you think can be done in terms of better securing schools, but without turning schools into an armed camp? I think uh, it requires uh, good process and procedures, uh, great notification systems. Uh, I think it takes um, integration between the mental health system and local law enforcement. Uh, I think the the Secret Service uh, interdiction model needs to be applied at a very early level with some of these uh, threats that are, are uh, either veiled or, or hard to ferret out. Um, so uh, I think it, it requires uh, a single federal government agency to be the focal point, uh, perhaps an organization like the United States Marshal Service. Uh, you know, they are quite good at uh, the physical protection of structures and, and so forth. And uh, I, again, I, I think the Bureau is a little bit strapped thin with terrorism and and espionage. But um, uh, if I was the attorney general, that's what I would do. I would appoint a lead federal law enforcement agency uh, to figure out a comprehensive solution uh, to this phenomena. Anything you want to add? Well, I reflect back on uh, the 25 years since the first World Trade Center bombing, JJ, and um, I think uh, the threat is never going to go away. I think we're going to be living with this phenomena uh, in the foreseeable future, I'm sad to say. Uh, but uh, I think it's good uh, to look at these uh, uh, kind of uh, catastrophic events as tripwires and the various shifts that have taken place uh, since that happened. Uh, so uh, I thank you for looking at the case. And uh, perhaps 25 years from now, um, will come a lot farther than we have so far. Fred, thank you. Thank you for your time and your expertise. Thank you for having me, JJ. We wanted to see what's taken place since the Ramzi Youssef era, now 25 years later, at what the State Department is doing to deal with terrorism and how its counterterrorism operation works. So for that, we sat down with counterterrorism coordinator, Nathan Sales, and I asked him the question, how the past, what Ramzi Youssef did, 9-11, and everything in between informs what they do today. One of the things that's really remarkable about the 93 World Trade Center bombing is how little effect it had on the U.S. national security community. It was very much business as usual. Um, the perpetrators were investigated. 
um, indictments were issued and people pretty much looked the other way with regard to the Al-Qaeda threat. Um, Al-Qaeda paid attention and they knew uh, that there were vulnerabilities in the United States and in our interests worldwide and they continued to hit us. And they hit us again in 98 when they attacked two embassies in East Africa. Uh, they hit us again in 2000, the USS Cole. And then 9-11, of course, they hit us in a very uh, damaging way that has had major repercussions. Um, it took the United States a long time, too long, I would say, uh, to uh, fully awaken to the threat that Al-Qaeda and similar organizations pose. Um, but we are now in a position, we now have um, developed the institutional capabilities, um, offices in the State Department, the National Counterterrorism Center, the Director for National Intelligence. And we now have, as a policy matter, a top priority to confront the terrorist threat. Uh, we're in a very different position today, quarter of a century on, from where we started off. And coming up on our next episode, we continue our conversation with Nathan Sales, Counterterrorism Coordinator at the State Department, about what's next in the fight against terrorism. The United States led the world in mobilizing, creating and mobilizing a global coalition um, to crush the false caliphate in Syria and Iraq. And we've achieved extraordinary success in doing that. Virtually all of the territory ISIS once held uh, has been liberated. Millions of people are now free. But that doesn't mean the fight is over. It means that it's shifting into a new phase. What comes next is a transition from a largely military response to ISIS to one that will increasingly rely on law enforcement tools and civilian uh, sector efforts, things like border security. That's coming up on our next episode of Target USA. A special thanks to the 9-11 Memorial Museum for making the audio of the survivors of the 1993 World Trade Center attack available. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Please subscribe to our podcast, and also let me know what you think. Send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa, jgreen at WTOP.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, podcast listener, this is Rob Sesternino. I'm the Rob, and Rob has a podcast, and the new season of Survivor is just getting started, and we've got new episodes for you five days a week. Join us for interviews with your favorite past Survivor players in this season's losers right after they get their torch snuffed. Listen free to Rob Has a Podcast, exclusively available on Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and the Podcast One app. And if you like the show, why not share it with a friend or leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.